Good morning. Happy Lord's Day. It's a good day to be together, isn't it? We are going to um, hit Module 4, Session 2, and as per usual, it is tradition to not send out the syllabus until <laughs> after I've started. That's kind of a, it's a Grace Bible Church thing. So today we'll be finishing the Minor Prophets, and I'm going to do a little review because it's been a number of weeks since we've been there. And if we have time, I'm going to start background to the New Testament. Um, but more importantly, we, we want to just do some administrative things and kind of do another uh, a little bit of uh, information about BTI. And Grant's going to do that. So we'll finish up a little bit early today. But let's get started on the Minor Prophets uh, Part 2, which finishes up the Old Testament. And then we will, we will uh, hit the New Testament if we have time. So let's pray together and let's get our Lord's Day started. Our Father, we come to you now so thankful for the cool morning and the opportunity to begin to gather as your people, Lord. Even now, I know that many of our folks are are coming in from different parts of town. And Lord, we're thankful for the ecclesia. We're thankful for the church of Jesus Christ and your kindness and goodness to us. I pray that this day, though uh, we we will take the evening off to be with our families, we, we pray that this morning, Lord, would... Lift our souls up to you. Remind us of Christ. And especially in this Christmas season, Lord, draw our eyes and our ears and our thoughts and our affections and our minds to our Savior, to our Lord, the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Okay, so we will... Oh, this is the big mystery, if this is going to work this week. Mystery solved. It doesn't work. So, uh, I'll just let some of the... uh, Keep advancing. How am I going to know if it works or not? I guess I'll just keep pushing the button. Oh, there it works. <laughs> All right. So we're going to uh, finish up the uh, the last six minor prophets, but it's been a bit since we've been there. So I want to just briefly review the minor prophets. I, I don't know when we get to do this again. So uh, it's often called the book of the 12, the apocryphal book, Ecclesiasticus, uh, chapter 49, verse 10 calls it the 12 prophets. And by the way, just a side note, on the Apocrypha, the the books that sometimes appear in Catholic Bibles, the ones that are written between the times of the Testaments, they are not Scripture. They are not the inspired Word of God. Neither are they inherently evil. So we just want to be clear about that. It it makes them evil if you try to make them scriptural, um, like the Catholic Church does. But they're not evil either, uh, in and of themselves. They're good historical records. They're encouraging. There are a lot of good things in it. They're just not scripture. Um, just like any any book you might see in a in, in a Christian bookstore or whatever doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong. It's just not scripture. So uh, this I just say this because a number of years ago somebody kind of freaked out that I was quoting the book of Ecclesiasticus. That's not in the Bible. Well, I know, but. I'm just saying that that particular book calls the minor prophets the 12, the 12 prophets. And that was a common term um, for the Jews. In the Hebrew Bible, it's called the book of the 12 prophets. And we saw that some regard it as one single work. Others regard it as 12 separate books. There is good evidence for both views. So what we do in our English Bible is we've divided it into uh, 12 but I want to encourage you again, at some point, uh, maybe over Christmas, this would be a great time to do this, start in the Minor Prophets and, and just read them all in one sitting. And you can do it in probably an hour, an hour and a half. 
just read them all and get the sense. And you'll see how uh, wonderfully they really do fit together. We saw that they span a time period of 415 years from 845 B.C. forward. We saw the historical uh, themes. The Day of the Lord, 14 times. And I've listed which books uh, that they're in there. No, I haven't. I have not listed those. They're in uh, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Malachi. That's half of them. So Day of the Lord is a big theme, and we'll see that today again. The sin of Israel and Judah, the judgment of Israel and Judah, the restoration of Israel and Judah. That's the minor prophets. Sin, judgment, restoration. And then you put a little asterisk, oh, by the way, the judgment of the nations. We have that in Joel 3, in Amos 1 and 2, all of Obadiah, in Jonah, in Nahum, in Habakkuk, in Zechariah 1, Zechariah 14. So the minor prophets are, they're just fascinating. They, they tell you how God deals with Israel. They tell you how God is going to deal with the world. And then we see that the, the purpose is that Israel's restoration will come after the day of the Lord, the Lord's day of judgment. And we did spend some time on how do we define the day of the Lord. And there's multiple definitions. The day of the Lord, generally speaking, is the time of judgment at the end. The day of the Lord, more specifically, is the great tribulation period from, or the tribulation period, rather, the seven-year period that when Antichrist brings peace at first and then three and a half years in, where we would call it the great tribulation, that gets even more specific. And then there will actually be a real day Zechariah 14 says that day will be like none that has come before or after, um, neither cold nor frost, nor uh, it, it's just a weird day. There's an actual day that is the day of the Lord. So all of those encompass the day of the Lord. So let's finish with these last six then, and we'll get with uh, Nahum to start. The date of Nahum the events are between 663 and 650 B.C., so it's a relatively uh, short period of time, 13 years or so. It's during the reign of King Manasseh, maybe later in Josiah, depending on how you date it. And this comes about 100 years after Jonah preached in Nineveh. Now, why is that important? Because Nahum also is about Nineveh. Nahum has the same focus that Jonah did, but this time the book is almost all about judgment. And this time, Nahum records the fact that Nineveh is not going to be spared. You remember in Jonah, Nineveh was spared. Historical and theological themes. Obviously, Nineveh is the big one. Nineveh was founded by Nimrod. Um, Genesis 10, verse 10. I don't know about you, I find this funny. When I was growing up, Nimrod was what you called somebody who wasn't very smart. You know, it's like, you're a Nimrod. And I don't know if that came from the Bible or, or something, but I, I would hate for my name to be the nickname for somebody who's not smart. That has nothing to do with anything. I just find that amusing. It is the Assyrian capital. It's historically the enemy of Israel. Now, I, I would love to do this sometime. I'd love to preach one whole message from Jonah and Nahum together because the lesson would be this. God wants to restore nations who will repent but ultimately, he will destroy those who don't because you have the same thing happening in, in the same nation, in, the, in Assyria. You have the theme of Yahweh's judgment on, on many nations. That's thrown in there as well. And then you have the purpose of Nahum. Yahweh would judge Nineveh for her cruel acts and immoral deeds. That's why he judges all nations. 
And then the literary structure, it's very simple. The destruction of Nineveh is decreed in chapter 1, it's described in chapter 2, and it's deserved. It it gives the rationale in chapter 3. And chapter 3 is very interesting because it gives insight into the heart of God in judgment, his righteous indignation. There's not a sense of meanness. There's not a sense of of, uh, being some sort of tyrant. There's a sense of his holiness having been offended. And so that's an important insight into the heart of God in judgment. The very last verse, Nahum 3.19. There is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not come your unceasing evil? What does that say? That says for this ultimately evil city and nation that ultimately all of their enemies are literally applauding their demise. And that is an appropriate Uh, that is a very appropriate response to evil. Yes, we ask the Lord to be merciful to the wicked, but if the wicked will not repent, we don't somehow try to become more righteous than God and say, oh, isn't it a shame that the wicked are being judged by God? That's not the biblical stance. The biblical stance is that righteous people applaud the judgment of God. And so we just have to be really biblical about that and not let emotion dictate. We need theology to come from Scripture, not from our culture. And I think it's a great lesson for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. Evil is like a a horrible stone in a pond and it has ripple effects all over the world, doesn't it? Evil doesn't just affect uh, one person. People say, well, this is a, a victimless crime or a victimless sin. There is no such thing. That does not exist. So Nahum, a good lesson in when repentance doesn't last or when repentance isn't real as far as a nation or as far as a city goes. And then my personal favorite of the 12, I had to do a lot of study on this in seminary. I really enjoy the book of Habakkuk. Uh, If you're wondering how to say Habakkuk, the way I learned it is it's the same as tobacco. I don't know why that's what somebody said, but that's, that's that's how you say it. You can say Habakkuk but that's probably not how his mom said it. So, uh, the date of the events, right before the Babylonian invasion. So this would have, the, the date of the book would be somewhere 626 to 615 in there. The invasion started under Nebuchadnezzar in 605. Remember, these are some of the dates I hope you'll memorize. Started in 605, heated up in 597. 597 or 605 is when he took uh, probably Ezekiel and Daniel. It culminated in 587, 586, more likely uh, BC, where he utterly destroyed Jerusalem. But Habakkuk is unique because this book is a conversation between God and his prophet. That's what the whole book is. It's this conversation going back and forth. The historical and theological themes, the ways of God, chapter 1, chapter 3, the righteous, chapter 1, chapter 2, and faith. And the purpose of the book is that the righteous will live by faith as Yahweh brings his judgment, awaiting their ultimate salvation. Now, just a little side note here. The Apostle Paul quotes Habakkuk 2, 4, three or four times in the New Testament. The righteous will live by what? By faith. This is a case of taking an Old Testament truth and applying it in not, not in a different way, but at a higher level. Because when Habakkuk is told by God, the righteous will live by faith, what he says, what what he's saying is it's not a spiritual life, it is physical life. 
that when the Babylonians invade, those who are truly my worshipers will survive. They will live. They might be carried off to Babylon, but they will live. They'll survive. Um, those who don't will not. Paul takes that, that the righteous, meaning those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ, will live by their faith, meaning live eternally. So it stacks a truth on top of a truth. And it's a, it's a wonderful uh, example of use of the Old Testament in the New. Literary structure. It goes back and forth. Habakkuk has his first complaint and, his, and, and the response of God. And, and this is a, a classic chapter because Habakkuk is griping to the Lord, and righteously so. Why is there injustice in Judah? Why do lawbreakers rule and law abiders are, are oppressed? Why is there no social justice? I hate the fact that the term social justice has been hijacked by, by wicked people. Social justice in the Bible is why is there no obedience to the law of Moses which takes care of its people? Why is that not there? So social justice in Scripture is obedience to the Lord and to his law. And so we can tell from Habakkuk's response that what he thought would happen is that God would say something like, you're right, we should have a new king or we should have some new elected officials or let's, let's pass a new law or let's, let's do some sort of program. And instead, God says, you're right. I'm going to send the Chaldeans, that wicked and fierce people, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem. And this is when Habakkuk's like, hold on. What are you talking about here? And in chapter 2, he says, why would you use the wicked to punish Judah? And Habakkuk's first impression is that Uh, that God's going to just wipe the nation out. And that's when God assures him, no, the righteous will live by faith. There's going to be a culling. There's going to be a separation. The righteous will live by faith. And then, and I love this, and then God will turn on the Chaldeans, the Babylonians. If you want to know what the difference between those two are, the Chaldeans were a people that occupied Babylonia and became the Babylonians, basically. So it has to do with, uh, with geography as well. And then in chapter 3, you have Habakkuk's petition, his praise, and a promise. God will remember his mercy. God is mighty. That's his praise. And Habakkuk will wait quietly for God to restore all things, no matter how bad it gets in the meantime. I love Habakkuk 3 because Habakkuk chooses to look beyond the destruction of Jerusalem. He doesn't beg God to stop it. Um, He looks beyond it and says, I'll wait for all the dust to settle, and I will trust that you are exactly perfect in all of your ways and in your righteousness. So that's a, that's a great lesson. By the way, chapter 3 um, tells us how we ought to respond to the thought of the judgment of God. He said that his bones became weak, that his lip trembled, that his knees were trembling, his stomach hurt. That's a response to the first revelation that God gave him. Yeah, I'm bringing the Chaldeans. And you read the description of the Chaldeans in chapter 1, it's terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. So that's Habakkuk. Then you have Zephaniah. This happened during the reign of Josiah, a little bit before uh, Habakkuk. 640 to 609 BC is when Josiah was reigning. You had five decades of Manasseh's apostasy. Manasseh was the, the, the last son of Hezekiah. 
and it created a, a massive spiritual toll on Judah. They never really fully recovered. When you have five plus decades of idol worship with a whole generation of Jews in Judah only knowing idolatry, recovering from that's pretty tough. But King Josiah did bring massive religious reform as a nation, but he couldn't change the hearts of people. Only God can do that. So Josiah was a good king. He changed things on the outside, but God had to change things on the inside, and he would do that through judgment. Historical and theological themes. You have the day of the Lord. Now, Zephaniah is prophesying 100 years after Joel, but in the mind of the prophet, the day of the Lord is still near. I I think that all throughout Scripture, one thing you can say about the day of the Lord, about the judgment of God, that's very consistent, is that God always presents judgment and the day of the Lord as maybe tomorrow. That it could happen any time. And I think that's that's very clear. Uh, Jesus himself said that, that you don't know the day or the hour. That judgment comes like a thief in the night and so forth. There's three explicit references to the day of the Lord, though, in Zephaniah. Zephaniah 1.7, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. Zephaniah 1.14, The great day of the Lord is near. And Zephaniah 2.2, Before the day passes away like chaff, before there comes upon you the burning anger of the Lord, before there comes upon you the day of the anger of the Lord. The judgment of God is never presented in Scripture as something to relax about because it's coming in a long time. Never presented that way. Only The only minor prophet, uh, or Zephaniah rather, is the only minor prophet other than Amos to include a string of international oracles about so many different nations um, really foreshadows the day of the Lord culminating in the return of Christ. So if you compare the book of Revelation to Zephaniah, and to uh, Amos, you, you see some similarities. And then, of course, you have the theme of the restoration of Israel. Zephaniah three fourteen and 15. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. I, I don't know how people who don't believe in the restoration of Israel, I don't know how they deal with Zephaniah three fourteen and 15. The king is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Who is he speaking to? Shout aloud, O daughter of Zion, that's Jerusalem, shout, O Israel. I don't know how you can get more specific than that. The purpose of the book, Yahweh's control of all nations will be proven in the day of the Lord, and the day of the Lord is near. It, it is coming. And then you can see the, the literary structure there. It's very similar to most of the minor prophets. You have a, a lot of focus on judgment. Then you have focus on future blessing. Chapters 1 and 2 and chapter 3. I do want to take just a moment and read to you uh, what I consider one of the most spectacular verses in all the Bible. And it, it may be my favorite verse in the Old Testament. And that is um, what, uh, what Zephaniah says about Christ and his return. It says in Zephaniah 3.17, this is a description of God on earth. The Lord God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you 
listen to this, with loud singing, that when Christ returns, he will sing at the top of his lungs in love for his people. In fact, this word, he will rejoice over you, it's a word that means to do this. The Lord Jesus Christ dancing in joy, singing in joy, and right between those two, quieting you by his love. That's a very different picture than we have of Christ, I think. But the only person uh, that will be more excited about the coming kingdom than you will be Christ. And uh, what does that say about grace? That he will sing over you. What do you have to sing over? Nothing. But he sings over you because you're one that he saved by grace and he has chosen to place his love on you. Love Zephaniah 3.17. You should read it often. How about Haggai? Some pronounce it Haggai, but if you look carefully, it doesn't, doesn't work that way. You can pronounce it however you like. Uh, it, it's probably something like Haggai or something like that, but we'll just say Haggai. 520 BC. This is one of the most specific dates we have. And in fact, there are four messages. The first message occurred on August 29th, the second, October 17th, and the third and fourth, both on December 18th, all 520 BC. And we know this very clearly because of historic events that are described. Now, if you know this, 520, all of a sudden, we've made a jump in dates. We've gone far forward. We're now back in Israel after the exile. And what's happened now is the first and second waves of Jews have returned to Jerusalem from Babylonian captivity by the decree of King Cyrus of Persia, who is now also king of Babylon. See also Daniel 5 for the switch in power, the night of invasion. Haggai and Zechariah, they're sort of the, they're, they sort of go together. And so you should keep those together in your mind. They ministered to the returned community, the exiled community that had come back. Two major themes. The temple. King Cyrus issued the decree in 538 for the temple to be rebuilt. It's 18 years later. The temple hasn't been finished. And so Haggai is confronting the people. Finish the temple. They've been back for a decade and a half and they're still not done. And then the second theme, God remembers his promise of a Davidic kingdom. Haggai 2, beginning in verse 20, the word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and I will make you a signet ring for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. So you have this, you have this uh, Zerubbabel guy suddenly promised an everlasting kingdom. What is that about? Zerubbabel was one who led the second group of returnees and he became the governor of Judah. Why is this promise of an everlasting kingdom given to him? Who is Zerubbabel? Well, it's very similar to when God promises David, I'll give you an everlasting kingdom. David himself did not receive an everlasting kingdom, but his descendant did. Jesus Christ. Zerubbabel is descended from whom? He's descended from David. And so... Matthew 1, 12 and 13 says this, Zerubbabel is a descendant of the Davidic kings. He's a direct ancestor of Jesus Christ. And so that promise of an eternal kingdom then goes 
to Christ. For God says, I have chosen you. Purpose of the book. The challenge to rebuild the temple was presented to the leaders and to the people. Uh, Just a little side note, uh, the book of Haggai has been preached many times during church building campaigns because the themes are very similar. Uh, Why would you neglect the house of God? Why would you neglect the place where his people gather to worship? It's probably not the best use of that text, but it is a legitimate application of it for sure. And then the literary structure, you can see for yourself there, there's four messages and I've given them uh, titles a rebuke for disobedience and then the people obey, the promise of restoration, the call to holiness, and the coming reign of God. Um, they're delineated pretty, pretty clearly even in your Bible, so uh, they're not hard to see there. If you know what Haggai is about, then you pretty much know what Zechariah is about, but Zechariah is sort of Haggai on steroids. There's just a, an elevated sense because you get a lot more information. Same time as Haggai, exactly the same time, they literally knew each other. It reads like the book of Revelation in imagery. If, if, um, if somebody said, what's the, what's the one book of the Old Testament you should preach? Um, if you have one choice and that's it, I probably would pick Zechariah. Probably because it's like my favorite New Testament book, Revelation. You have these historical and theological themes. The Lord of hosts, 52 times. Yahweh or, or uh, Adonai Sabaoch. It's, it's the Lord of the armies. Now, why is that so important? Because the heavenly armies is a major theme here. Heavenly armies becomes a major theme. And interestingly, along with that, you have the need for repentance, Yahweh's control of the nations. So it's like the noose of God's judgment is beginning to tighten in Zechariah. And, and you see it very clearly with the theme of the military theme. You have Yahweh's future restoration of Israel. And then, gloriously, you have this coming shepherd king, this coming priest, which we, of course, know as Christ. And the purpose of the book is that Yahweh remembers the nation of Israel. And even though Israel has been unfaithful time and time again, and he'll judge early in the book, he will bring messianic blessing upon it. And you read uh, the the end of Zechariah, and it, it is... A, our most detailed description of the actual day of the Lord, the actual day of the return of Christ. It's more detailed than even the book of Revelation gives us. So that's why when you read Revelation and you compare Zechariah, you go, these, these go together. They help one another. What was the result of, of Zechariah? His call to the returned Israel to a deeper spiritual life, it went unheeded. They pretty much ignored him. Now put it this way, Haggai said, rebuild the temple. Zechariah said, while you're rebuilding the temple, rebuild your hearts and look forward to the coming of our God. And so it was a good, a good one-two punch there. Now, just a little historical note. Zechariah's call to a deeper spiritual life was mostly ignored. But 60 years later, you have Ezra and Nehemiah. And then that becomes more, much more of a spiritual restoration. You see Nehemiah chapter 8, this glorious day where all of Israel gathers to hear the entire law of God read and taught a, a sermon from sunup to sundown and their glorious uh, repentance and obedience. And then finally, we finish the Old Testament with Malachi. 
date of the events, sometime after Haggai and Zechariah and before the return of Ezra and Nehemiah. So right in there in between that 60-year period. Those who have returned have rebuilt the temple, but their spiritual lives haven't changed. Uh, Let me give you an illustration we could all uh, relate to. What would we... What would we incur from the Lord if we go to our uh, now in escrow, don't have keys yet, but we're praying building uh, on White Lane and we get there and we decided, you know, we need to change up everything we're doing now. We need to attract people with with visual means and we need to uh, make sure that unbelievers feel really, really happy being here and they can be comfortable for two, three, five years without hearing the gospel so that we can make them happy. What would that do? That would incur the discipline of the Lord because now we miss the point and that is changing people's hearts. And so Malachi is going after those whose spiritual lives haven't changed. There's a sense of disappointment. The people thought Messiah was supposed to come immediately. And so even some of God's people were mocking God's apparent failure to restore covenant blessings to Israel. Well, God couldn't do it. He didn't do it on time. And we think, well, nobody, nobody would ever do that. I hear that all the time. Well, God didn't heal me when I, I thought he should. God didn't give me what I wanted. We point fingers at God and say he didn't do what I expected. Since when does the God of the universe do anything we expect? That's not reasonable. And so the people of Israel were mocking God. And we see lists of sins that they were committing, historical and theological themes the sins of Israel and then the future judgment of Israel. And then, of course, in God's grace, yet again, the future blessing on Israel. And so the purpose of the book, Israel was called to repentance and to covenant faithfulness. And you remember how Malachi ends. The whole Old Testament, in, in, older, um, in older English versions, I think the original NASB and, and the King James Version, the very last word of the Bible And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a curse. And it's been often preached that the last word of the Old Testament is the land is cursed. And the first recorded words of Jesus Christ in the New Testament is the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's a turnaround. There's there's an act of grace. But the New Testament, or the Old Testament rather, ends on a brutal warning. The curse is coming. If you don't turn. Now, what I love about the end of Malachi, though, is the bigger context is, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children. And I've preached this before. I won't belabor the point. But Jesus referred to John the Baptist as the first Elijah, the one who will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. What was John the Baptist's job? It was to plow the ground of repentance so that the people of Israel will be ready to receive their Messiah. And he was baptizing them um, in, in masses, by, in droves, because they were repenting. Now, again, this is a, an example of prophecy that's telescopic. Elijah is called by Jesus, or, or uh, John the Baptist, rather, is called by Jesus, Elijah. But we also see that Elijah will come right before the great and awesome day of the Lord, which is the judgment of God. I take that as Revelation 11, two men who look a lot like Moses and Elijah. So uh, you have that telescopic nature. So Malachi 4 
is just a, it just has a spectacular ending and yet it ends with a warning. You repent or judgment is coming. That's how the whole Old Testament ends. And then you turn the page and you take that to horrible blank page that shouldn't be in your Bible and you begin the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. There's your hope. When the Old Testament ends in a curse, then you have the hope of Christ. Malachi gives a call to repentance. And I just want to give you a little list here. It's very practical. Purify a corrupt and complacent priesthood. What does that mean? Put it in our terms. Get rid of the bad pastors. Get rid of the bad shepherds. Transform insincere and boring worship into a joyful sacrifice of praise in which God delights. In other words, make worship the most important thing in your life and work at it. Put some effort into it. Correct the abuses of the tithe and temple worship. What were the abuses of the tithe? It was taking God's people's money and wasting it and using it for selfish purposes. This was a problem in the, in the priesthood, priestly family in the days of Christ. The, the, the high priestly family, it was like a family business, like a mafia-run organization. They were taking that money and they were stealing it. Or, it could also be the people not tithing. Now, how many sermons have been preached in the church um, from Malachi uh, about not stealing from the Lord and so forth? We're not under the law of God. But the point is, is that the people didn't care about the things of the Lord and so they ignored the law. Not just the law of the tithe, they were ignoring all the law. They were ignoring temple worship. It was just, it was, they were cultural Jews. I bet, I bet most of you would raise your hand if I asked you to raise your hand if you know somebody who says, yeah, I'm a Christian, I just don't care for church. How many of you? Yeah, that's Malachi. Yeah, I'm a Jew, I just don't do temple worship. You know what God says? Then you're not mine. You don't belong to me. Malachi also is a call to restore broken family relationships. We would say from the New Testament, husbands love your wives, wives submit to your husbands, children obey your parents. And then Malachi calls to restore social justice based in God's covenant with Israel. Do what's right as a society. Social justice is fine as long as it follows what God says. You can't just say, this is what I think we should do because God would say it. Um, you can't just attach any, any agenda you have to the gospel and say, well, uh, uh, this is a gospel issue. No, it's not. The gospel issue, the gospel is never about anything we do. The gospel is about what we believe. That's what the gospel is. So Malachi, boy, if you take their call to repentance, very practical, get rid of bad spiritual leaders, transform your worship, correct abuses, uh, restore broken families, and do what's right to take care of one another. That sounds like a pretty good church, doesn't it? So you almost could preach ecclesiology from Malachi, and I just got that idea, and that might happen in the future. So... I think what we're going to do is I'm going to take um, just a, a couple of minutes and do a quick background to the introduction to the New Testament. And we'll probably go back to this. And I'm going to have Grant come up and, and say a few words to all of you. But I think we have time to do this. Since we just finished the Old Testament, understanding the, um, understanding the background, the history of the Old Testament it is really helpful to us. I think it would actually help you um, interpret the Old Testament a lot more easily.
But so just a little history here, and I know this isn't our favorite thing, but, but backgrounds, you, know, you don't buy a house and go, oh, I can hardly wait to watch the concrete be poured. That's just going to, I'm going to, you know, look, this plant would look so good on this part of the concrete. We all know concrete is necessary. This is the concrete, and we'll build the house on it. This is what is called the Second Temple Period. Second Temple Period begins in 538, the decree by Cyrus to rebuild, and it goes all the way to A.D. 70, the destruction of the temple. So it's, uh, it's about a 600-year period or so. Um, and that's the Second Temple Period. Solomonic Temple was destroyed, 586. Um, it's rebuilt then after the decree of Cyrus, Second Temple. In Jesus' day, the temple still wasn't finished. It still wasn't done. Herod uh, contributed to the construction and refurbishing of the temple, but it was still Second Temple. They were still working on it. The emphasis on Galilee, the northern area of Israel, begins after the Old Testament period. Um, and in fact, let's just do this now because it's, it's important for you to know as we get through the Old Testament. If you were to picture a basic map of, of Israel in uh, Jesus' day, they wouldn't have said the nation of Israel, at least not out loud. They would call it the, the province of Judea, or they would call it the, uh, the governorship of Judea, and it had three provinces, uh, or they, it had three minor provinces. So in the south, you have Judea or Judah, same thing, and that is where Jerusalem is. In the middle, you have Samaria, and to the north, you have Galilee. So those are three major areas, and those, if you memorize those, to the south, Judea or Judah, you have in the middle, Samaria, and then to the far north, you have Galilee. Now, a lot of the New Testament geography begins to make sense. There were four basic time periods in the time between the Testaments, the Second Temple period. You had the Persian period. From 538 to 332, you had the Hellenistic period. From 332 to 142, you had Alexander the Great. Then his, his kingdom was split apart. You have the, the Ptolemies of Egypt, the Seleucids of Syria, dividing up the, the kingdom that Alexander had conquered. You have the Maccabean or Hasmonean period from 166 to about 63 BC. This includes the Maccabean Revolt. You have the Hasmonean rule. This is when... Uh, Galilee became an official part of Jewish living when the northern area becomes uh, essentially Jewish. The Maccabeans and the Hasmoneans, uh, there were conquests. They were trying to increase the borders of Israel, and they did for a time. The borders expanded almost to Old Testament proportions, but somebody was watching and somebody was helping. Who was funding the Maccabeans and the Hasmoneans? The Romans. The reason the Romans were funding those fights was because they were fighting the Seleucids of Syria who were the Roman enemies. So it was, it was basically the Romans providing money, providing arms, and probably providing some soldiers. But the Jews said, well, this is our fight. Doesn't that sound like modern-day politics and geopolitical wars? It's the same thing. After the Maccabeans and the Hasmoneans did Rome's dirty work, then Romans said, thank you very much. We will now take over. And in 63 BC, that's what they did. Never believe a large power that is saying, I have your best interest at heart. 63 onward, you have the rise of Antipater and his sons from 63 to 37. You have the reign of Herod the Great, the son of Antipater. He was, Herod the Great was what was called a client king. 
He works for Rome in exchange for being a king, but he does all things in the interest of Rome. The reign of Herod the Great, 37 to about 4 BC, and that is the, that is the Herod under whom Christ was born. He was declared by Rome in 37 as the king of the Jews. He took over. He became the buffer between the Romans and the Jews. And and he did some comparatively good things. He helped rebuild the temple. He basically told the Jews, look, if you don't want Rome to come and crush you, then you should do what I say. But he was a very, very jealous king. He liked being king of the Jews. He liked that. And ironically, he was a descendant of Esau, not of Jacob. That's a whole side note. Then you have the rule of Herod's sons and his grandson, Herod Agrippa, from 4 B.C. all the way to A.D. 44. And then you have the rule of Roman governors from A.D. 6 onward. Uh, there's one particular Roman governor. We don't know which province he was, he was over, but his name is Theophilus. And Theophilus is famous because he was the one to whom the book of Luke and Acts was addressed because he got saved. And his basic question was, look, I'm a Roman governor I'm like the guy who crucified Jesus. How could I, a Gentile and a Roman and a governor, possibly be saved? And the book of Luke and the book of Acts is answering that question for him and for all Gentiles. Side note there. You have during, and we'll finish with this, you have during the, well, I guess we'll finish with that. There it is. Uh, You have, oh yeah, there it is. Five major crises. Big time historical um, upheaval. I know we live in a time where we're used to this. Every five years there's a coup in this country and this and that and trying to have one here now and who knows what's happening. Remember in the ancient world, things would go hundreds of years without changing. And so in a brief period of 400 years to have five major crises was a huge deal. You have first of all, the crisis of reestablishment. You had the reestablishment of the, the Israelite population in Israel and Judah, the Persian province of Yehud is what they called it. You had Jerusalem being rebuilt. You had an actual temple. You had, you had proper temple worship. All of that was trying to take place in the midst of local opposition from all the neighboring nations. See also the book of Ezra and Nehemiah. The neighboring peoples and tribes hated the fact that Israel was being restored. The second major crisis, you have the collapse of the Persian Empire. And the influence of Hellenism after Alexander the Great. Every time a major kingdom collapses, even if it's a bad kingdom, people die. That happens all throughout history. And what happened, uh, for example, in 1945 when, when the Nazis were in the middle of being defeated, that was the highest rate of, of, uh, of death in the war because the Nazis had nothing to lose. And so on their way out, they were just murdering tens of hundreds of thousands of people. You have the violent persecution by Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes is so bad that in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11, he becomes the model for Antichrist. And, and you can read in Daniel, you want to know how Antichrist will be? Read about Antiochus Epiphanes. You have the domination of Palestine by Rome, beginning in 63 B.C., And then finally, you have the Roman destruction of the Jewish state and of the second temple from 66 to 73 AD, rather, um, 66 to 73. um, The Romans had enough. There was one revolt too many. The Sicarii, who were basically terrorists that would walk around killing people. 
Rome said that's enough. And they did what Rome does best and they crushed Jerusalem completely. So that's the background of the New Testament. Now Jesus comes into the scene between or in the middle of number four and before number five. And he, in fact, predicts the destruction of Jerusalem and predicts the dominion of Rome on the way to the cross. When women are weeping for him, he said, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your children because of what's coming. So next time we'll continue the background in the New Testament. That'll help us to have the New Testament make sense. Uh, By next time, I mean in two times because we'll do systematic theology uh, next time as we go back.